50 years ago, at 8.30 p.m. Central, one television program changed the science fiction landscape, primetime television, and genre fiction forever. Star Trek lit the spark for a franchise, for a fandom, for a sensation, in a way that nothing quite has since on television. The development of a cast of characters over serialized fiction is something that is as old as the movies itself, but is something that gained new traction with a series that people demanded be kept on the air, a series that people have kept bringing back to the air, and in 2017 will once again be back on TV. Now, when many people think of Star Trek, they think of one voice. They think of the voice you usually hear over this music. But for me personally, I was changed by a different voice. You could argue that it was his face rather than his voice that was a big deal to me, growing up a mixed, multi-ethnic kid in north-central Texas. A lot of us have those bucket list people that we'd like to meet, and I got to meet this guy and stand on a stage with him at Fan Expo Canada in Toronto over the weekend. My mother was crying. And my father was yelling to warn the sailors, yelling for them to fire back. I could think of nothing more appropriate for Star Trek's 50th anniversary than to celebrate one of the voices of Star Trek that means the most to me, Mr. George Takei. The audio you're hearing is from a compilation clip loop that they put together just in advance of the two of us hitting the stage. On this very special episode of Electric Shadow, you're going to hear from George Takei himself about foundational influences on him as an actor, as a person, his experiences as part of the Japanese-American and Japanese-Canadian internment, and just the kind of effect that something can have on your career that you don't realize until years later. It goes back to your own fandom. This episode of Electric Shadow is brought to you by Drobo, Mac Weldon, and Fracture. You'll hear more about them as the show continues, but let's jump right in with the man, the icon, the activist, the legend, the wonderful Mr. George Takei. Oh my! (laughs) Thank you, thank you very much. It's great to be here in Canada, where you have the coolest prime minister You are so lucky to have him. He's even on a comic book cover now. How cool is that? And to be here in the year 2016, which is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And thank you all very much for giving us this gift. Because we, Jimmy Doohan asked me, What do you think of the prospect for this series? We were just filming the pilot film, and I told him, well, with this series, I smell quality. I smell something that's going to be, something that we're going to be very proud of. 
because I've seen all the actors now. They're wonderful actors, and the writing is very good, and that means we're going to last one season. <laughs> because all the shows that I loved back then were canceled after the first season, and they were all quality shows. And so, you know, we're going to be proud of what we're going to do, but it's, uh, we shouldn't plan for anything more than one, uh, one season. How wrong I was. <laughs> Here we are, 50 years later. We've uh, got, what, 14 feature films now. Four, is it four spin-off series? The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise. And now we have Discovery coming. And, That'll be yes, the fifth. A, another TV series coming. So five children that we've given birth to. <laughs> We're very proud parents, and we love all of our children. And so we have you to thank for that. And, well, especially looking over all this sea of heads, the um, original fans I can recognize. No hair or with hair, but pretty white. <laughs> Thank you, original fans, for giving us this longevity. You're the ones that did it. But what we noticed is that those original fans procreated like tribbles. <laughs> and now they're bringing their grandchildren to conventions. And something ha seems to happen in three generations the little kids that they're carrying with them automatically go like this. <laughs> and they seem to have grown pointy ears. So it is an amazing phenomenon. Thank you for this 50th birthday party that you've given us. And we'll see you at the 100th anniversary of Star Trek. I'll be there. I intend to be there. <laughs> Thank you all very much, but that means you're going to have to stop pro procreating some more to have more fans to make, give us that 100 years uh, experience. And so with that, I hand it back over to you, Mr. Master of Ceremonies. <laughs> we are uh, getting people lined up to ask questions. I have a couple for you. Something that we saw on the screen before you came out, one of my favorite parts of Star Trek. Is, is the reason why when people ask me, who is your favorite Star Trek captain, I have a very fast answer, and it's Captain Hikaru Sulu. <laughs> Seeing an actor of Asian Thank descent, you very much. an actor of Asian descent commanding a starship in the early 90s was incalculably influential to me. And I've seen a, a public television documentary that, uh, that you're featured in uh, about an actor named Jack Sue a man who was very important to Asian actors coming up when you came up as an actor. He was one of those guys that you could look up to. Is anybody out here familiar with Jack Sue? I, I feel he's... The, some people know Jack Sue. Can you tell us a bit about this guy? Barney Miller. So anybody remember him from that? Jack Sue. He has an interesting history. You know, during the Second World War, in Canada as well as in the United States, Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians we're looked on as if we're the enemy. We're Americans and Canadians, and yet we have these faces that look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And 
we were summarily rounded up with no charges, no trial, no due process, simply because of our ancestry, our face. And we were put into barbed wire prison camps for the duration of the war. And when the war was over, they opened up the gates and said, okay, you're free. But they had impoverished us. They took our homes, our, our parents' businesses, our freedom, and then they said, we're free. And I remember when, we, uh, when the war ended, we went back to Los Angeles from where our family came. And our first home after the imprisonment was on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. The hatred was still intense. And Jack Su, despite that Chinese-sounding name, was Japanese-American. His real name was Jack Suzuki. But he couldn't work with the name Suzuki because it, it, it's Japanese. And so in order to work, he had to, to take just the first syllable of his name, Su, which sounded Chinese, and he was able to work as a stand-up comic in nightclubs. When he got his great opportunity, and that was Rodgers and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song, it was a Chinese story, and he had a Chinese name, so he was cast in that. But he thought, well, times have changed. It's, it's 10 years after the war. Maybe I can go back to my Japanese name. And so he went up to the producers and said, my name is really Jack Suzuki, and I'd like to be billed as Jack Suzuki. They said, sorry, no can do, because our two leading ladies are Japanese Americans. Miyoshi Umeki, who had won an Oscar for Sayonara, the uh, Marlon Brando movie, and the other leading lady was Pat Suzuki, the very same last name. We have two Japanese playing, uh, females playing the, uh, the leads. And so you're going to have to remain Jack Sue. And so he had to stay with that uh, first syllable of his uh, uh, Japanese name. And he became famous as a result of that. And then he was cast in, uh, in uh, other films. And I had the opportunity to work with him in uh, John Wayne's Green Berets. Jack the Sue. only movie where the sun sets in the east. What? The only movie where the sun sets in the east yes. because of the way that they filmed it. <laughs> That's right. There's a, the, uh, at the end, there's a scene where John Wayne walks into the sunset um, with a little uh, Vietnamese boy. And the sun was setting there. Vietnam faces the Pacific. The sun sets on the mountain range. But you know, on, uh, on, in the Green Berets... It's uh, set uh, on the sun, or, I mean the ocean horizon. So a little fault there, and this eagle-eyed <laughs> four eyes here <laughs> caught that. But uh, I worked with uh, Jack Sue in that. He was a real nice guy. He was much older than me, but he had gone through the internment as a, um, an adult. I was a five-year-old child, so... I had a different kind of perspective on it. And so he really had to struggle. But he landed a, a regular role on the series called Barney Miller. And he became very popular with that. Everybody knew him. But uh, the, those uh, that experienced the internment as an adult 
uh, had suffered enormously, and most uh, Japanese American men uh, had a very uh, short life, premature death, and uh, we lost Jack when he was much too young to be going in his early 60s. And I lost my father in his uh, mid-70s. So it was a very difficult time that Jack Sue had as an Asian-American actor. And I'm so grateful that I'm uh, about 10 years his uh, junior, and I've been able to have a career without as intense a struggle. There has, it has been a struggle, but not like Jack Sue's. And certainly, Star Trek has been a fantastic launching pad for me. I think everyone out here would agree with me that you have more than capably carried the torch for one of your heroes, and we thank you for that. Well, thank you very much for that. And I mean but Jack I, I, and your dad. I should return the compliment. You have high standards, very good taste. You're very intelligent. <laughs> You, you bring up the, in, the internment, and, and I have to bring up uh, one of my favorite bits of your recent work, the Broadway musical Allegiance, which you were in with... Some of you saw it. Thank you very much. Leah Salonga. That's my legacy project. A wonderful, wonderful cast, beautiful music, an extremely moving message. Uh, how, how did Allegiance come to you? How did, how did this musical about Japanese internment come into being? Not Japanese internment, because Japan had those... Japanese-American. Japanese-American, or... A Japanese Canadian, because the same thing happened here in Canada as well. Uh, your question was... Uh, how did it come to pass? How did this fall in your lap, as it were? Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the whole project. Yeah. Well, this, you know, th that, uh, I'm one of the last generation of uh, Japanese Americans or Japanese Canadians that can talk about uh, the internment personally. I experienced it but I experienced it as a child. And it's always been my mission in life to make sure that the story is not forgotten, that it would not fade away when us who experienced it are gone. Thank you very much. So I've been going on speaking uh, tours throughout uh, not only the US, but in Canada and also in England. I'll be speaking at uh, the Oxford Union at uh, Oxford University uh, in two weeks. And this spring, I spoke at Cambridge. And so that's been my mission. We founded a museum called the Japanese American National Museum, where we institutionalized that story. But I'm an actor, and I'm a passionate lover of the theater. And it's always been my dream to dramatize it, and ideally, as a musical, because a musical commands a larger audience, I met a composer-lyricist in, of all places, uh, Broadway theater. And uh, so we decided to collaborate together, and that's how uh, uh, Allegiance came about. We met at a performance of uh, In the Heights. Uh, Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda's precursor to, to Hamilton. He's the guy that uh, is now storied as the uh, star and writer and, uh, and all-around renaissance man of uh, Hamilton, the big Broadway hit. But uh, his first uh, Broadway musical, uh, In the Heights, is about the, the uh, Puerto Rican community in New York. And that was a big hit, too. And so Brad and I went to see that. And in the same role was 
J. Quo, a very gifted uh, composer lyricist. And that's where the story started. We started sharing ideas, and from that came allegiance. Well, your magnificent voice is well known. We got to know it in a different context entirely in allegiance. My voice is getting very hoarse now. I've been talking to all the fans all morning long. <laughs> Should we bring you some water? Uh, I have it right oh, here. <laughs> Now, speaking of your voice, uh, one of my favorite uh, things that you've done in your career is a, an extensive amount of voice acting. You're, you, you've done commercials, you've done cartoons, uh, you're very memorable in Mulan for me in particular. Uh, it, getting into the world of voiceover acting, what, are you using different muscles, different skills for that than when you're on screen? Well, it's the voice that's primarily, but you, 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 know, you certainly use your imagination. Uh, I started my career, as a matter of fact, my very first gig was dubbing in uh, in the English dialogue to a Japanese science fiction film called Rodan. Anybody heard of Rodan? People at a comic convention know what Rodan uh, is? You are sci-fi fans if you know Rodan because uh, that was more than 50 years ago. I won't tell you how, it was more something like 60 two or three years Oh, ago. the math doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in, in this business a long, long time. And there, it's uh, also understanding timing. Because we're tr uh, uh, dubbing in English to actors that are speaking in Japanese. And so uh, there are two different languages. And you, so you got to find where you want to breathe or where you, where you want to go fast or slow down so that you fit the actor's lip movements. And it's a real skill. I work with uh, 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 professionals that have been working at it for a long, long time, and I learned a great deal from people like uh, uh, Joe Freeze and uh, Key Luke uh, on that uh, gig. So it's learning and paying attention, getting a sense of rhythm, and knowing how to coordinate that with your voice. I should also promote the thing that you have in theaters right now that you did voice work with. Both you and Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa are in Kubo and the Two Strings. Ah, many of you have seen it. Isn't it a beautiful film? And it's stop action. So, you know, it's very time consuming and tedious. They tell an epic story of medieval Japan. In fact, it's a mystical story and they do it with stop-action puppetry, and it is fantastically, breathtakingly gorgeous. I mean, it begins with a storm scene, and how they do that with wa waves coming up and engulfing the, the ship is absolutely amazing. Cinematic magic. I recommend it highly to those of you who have yet to see Kubo. It's a real treat. Now, George, we're going to turn it over to audience questions. Pay close attention. Let me know. Let me know if one of these in particular turns out to be really good. There's a reason I'm asking. There's a reason I'm asking. So, so let me know who does a particularly good job. Well, the reason why he's te teasing you like that is, and think hard about uh, the question you ask, because the person who I deem to, be, to have asked the best question whatever the best question might be in my mind, gets a very special gift. I won't tell you anything more than that. We'll You'll spoil the surprise at the, at the end. end. <laughs> All right. Let's go right ahead. Hi, George. Uh, Mark from Montreal. Where are, oh, there you are. Here I am. Yeah, come further up. Come further up. Let yeah, the man see you. I want to see who's asking the question. And with 
These two lights glaring in our faces. There you are. How oh. many fingers? Yes. <laughs> okay. Two your, shirt, your shirt says, damn it, Jim. <laughs> okay. Mark from Montreal, I have a question. What do you think would be the episode if well, you were you're in the enter enterprise flying by near Krypton, then while the little capsule's passing by with Superman inside, then automatically you would beam up the capsule into the Enterprise, and then Superman would be on board. What about that one? How would, how would he react would to Superman, that, that Superman suddenly beaming on board of the Enterprise? Yeah, while, you're, while it's passing It's by. a very imaginative idea to combine Superman, the different uh, characters from uh, a different uh, world, with uh, the world of Star Trek in the 23rd century. Uh, I think, you know, we always talked about imagination and creating the unthinkable uh, eventually as reality. But in that case, uh, it's not the unthinkable because you thought of it, but it's the legally doable. <laughs> because Star Trek is owned by Paramount and CBS, and Superman uh, is owned by some other corporation, I don't know, Marvel Comics. Warner, Warner Brothers, DC. Warner Brothers, Brothers, DC. He and keeps up with Paramount. So he you can have a whole battalion of lawyers, and I don't think that will be worked out. <laughs> it would be pretty interesting. It would be interesting. In fact, the working out in itself may be a whole movie story in itself. <laughs> then it would say, like, damn it, damn it, Jim. Look what we got on board. <laughs> that's Scotty's line. No, that's a, a McCoy's line. And he would not like Superman. <laughs> he, he, you know, he knows, at least he's finally gotten to understand the Vulcan anatomy. Green-blooded, pointy-eared Vulcan. He got to understand that. Superman is, has a whole different anatomy and, an, uh, and a system there. What color is Superman's blood? Has he ever bled? He is red? Red-blooded. That's right, he's a red-blooded American, right? Lois Lane. <laughs> He's Canadian. Well, he was created by Canadians. No, no, he flew by. No, he flew by Canada. Yeah, one of his creators was Canadian. But Canadians can. My aunt was a Japanese American, but she married. Would you believe a Canadian? What luck! <laughs> and she became a Canadian. And I have Canadian cousins. And my aunt lives in Dom Mills, right here in uh, Toronto. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, hello, Mr. Takei. Uh, pleasure and honor to address you. My question is, and I ask this of all the uh, Star Trek actors I can get the chance to talk to, um, when it comes to your character of Sulu, is there any like aspect or backstory or just something you came up with yourself that ultimately, just through the creative process or the higher-ups, just ultimately never made it into the character and the show, but it's something that you as the person who played the character always kind of thought was, this is always going to be the character's you know, thing, but just we just never got to see it? Well, you put it in a negative way, but I want to tell you about when I did get my, one of my ideas into the show. Uh, Naked Time, that episode that's my favorite, originally had Sulu brandishing a samurai sword. This was told to me about a month before we actually shot that by the writer, uh, um, uh, John D.F. Black. 
uh, in between shots, uh, we were all sitting on canvas chairs like this, and he plunked himself down beside me, and he said, uh, you know, we're working on the script where um, you lose all your inhibition by this virus that attacks you through the palm of your hand, and uh, we're thinking of putting a, a samurai sword in his hands. What do you think of that? And I said, well, I'm of Japanese ancestry, and so it's uh, culturally and ethnically consistent. But when I was a kid, I didn't play samurai. And I told him, one of my, the things I loved playing was my parents took, took me to see uh, Errol Flynn in The Adventures of Robin Hood. And I was swept away by that. And I, when, when, when we came home, I had my mother make me a Robin, Robin Hood outfit. Uh, my backyard had a great big tree that was easy to climb. And uh, my backyard became Sherwood Forest. And I gathered my neighborhood kid, uh, kids, uh, my friends, uh, to, uh, to play Robin Hood. And I remember Gary McGarry was a skinny, uh, taller than me, blonde kid. But it was my backyard, and my mother made the costumes, so he played Friar Tuck, who was short <laughs> and fat and tubby. But he was my Friar Tuck, because he was, he was my be best friend. And Martha Gonzalez, halfway down the block, uh, became my maid Marion. So I, I told uh, John that I, I used to play um, Robin Hood, and I used to fence. And he said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, well, you know, it's not culturally consistent, but this is science fiction. It's, 23rd, it's the 23rd century. And Sulu would certainly see himself, uh, his heritage, as the heritage of the world. And so why not put a, f a fencing foil in his, uh, in his hands? And he said, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Do you fence? I told him, it's my favorite sport. <laughs> And then that Saturday, I had the Yellow Pages. Any, any, anybody here know what the Yellow Pages is? <laughs> this, this, was a, this was a 20th century technology, yes? E exactly. I was looking up fencing lessons. <laughs> and I found one on Sunset Boulevard, not too far from uh, where I lived. And I took my first lesson, my formal fencing lesson, uh, about a month before we actually shot that. And the thing, exciting thing about that was the, the instructor that I got was a Mr. Faulkner who told me that he choreographed the fencing scenes in The Adventures of Robin Hood. <laughs> and he doubled for Basil Rathbone in the, in the uh, Errol Flynn's close-ups because he told me that Errol Flynn was terrified of Basil Rathbone's fencing because he was so totally uncontrolled. And he wanted to have uh, uh, Mr. Faulkner f fencing with him uh, for the close-ups. And so, as a, uh, the, someone that I, that I admired as a kid, I was actually watching his, the backside of him, uh, uh, my uh, fencing instructor, in uh, those close-ups that uh, Errol Flynn did. So. Naked Time gave me, gave me that wonderful gift of uh, meeting the man who uh, created, I mean, uh, choreographed that, and who uh, doubled for Basil Rathbone. Thank you very much, Mr. K. It's amazing how things come full circle in a career. Things that you, it's amazing how things come full circle in a career. You know, things that you're a fan exactly. of as a kid that end up coming back and they're, they're part of the work that you do.
Next question. Uh, hello, I am Thomas from Angus. Um, Hi, Angus. <laughs> okay. I uh, like your beef. I, <laughs> me too. Um, now, I've been watching Star Trek since I was old enough to be my parents' remote control. Um, but when I was You've that You've grown young, up well. I've grown out, I've grown out well. Um, you have indeed. But I, I was never able Lots to... Lots of beef there. <laughs> oh my. Um, Mine too. <laughs> now, I wasn't able to appreciate the breakthroughs and the barriers broken by Gene Roddenberry and, and, and the likes of my heroes as a kid until I became an adult. And I got a, a greater appreciation of what you did, what Michelle and everyone did. Now, my question is about your personal life and um, your efforts with the LGBTQT community, or however number of letters. A lot of letters there. <laughs> I, LGBTQ. I, I, I actually want to start a movement to change it from A to Z. A to, a to, um, do you think your personal life had an impact in the way they portrayed Sulu in the reboot? In the last movie, Star Trek Beyond, um, you see Sulu there with his, with his partner and his small son. Did you have an influence to make that possible so that Gene Roddenberry's legacy could break one more barrier in the Star Trek universe? I tried to make an impact, and I had no influence on that. Let me get, tell you a little story about that. Um, about two years before, or maybe a year and a half before the movie came out, I got a call from uh, John Cho, who's the new uh, uh, Sulu, and he said, um, they're talking about uh, honoring you, George Sakai, um, uh, because of all your advocacy for LGBT equality, uh, of making Sulu gay. And what do you think about that? And I said, well, the movie's going to be coming out on the, on the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. I'm very flattered that they want to honor me, but they really should be honoring Gene Roddenberry, who created the show. It was his vision, his philosophy, his ability to pound on some of those mahogany desks and, and persuade and cajole and sometimes uh, bully those uh, network executives into uh, buying that idea of Star Trek. It's him that should be uh, honored. It's not about me. It's about Gene Roddenberry on the 50th anniversary. And I told Gene Roddenberry created all of the characters uh, in the original series as straight characters because of the times. Because back in the 60s, you know, th there were various uh, equality movements going on. Uh, uh, the, the civil rights movement, or uh, the peace movement, uh, or the Cold War, a lot of other struggles. But the gay equality, gay liberation movement was just beginning. I mean, Stonewall, the, the um, bar that got raided in uh, Greenwich Village, happened in 1969 after Star Trek was canceled. And so uh, it was an idea that uh, was not shared by the majority of uh, the populace. And if Gene told me, I'm treading a very tight, tight rope by dealing with the issues that I'm dealing with. Uh, if I step too far, the show may be canceled. 
and I wouldn't be able to make any commentary about any of the social issues. And he cited for me the example of uh, uh, where white Captain Kirk kisses black Uhura. That was so controversial then, a black-white kiss, it was so controversial that the stations in the South, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, and Georgia, didn't air it. They banned the episode. And the, uh, the, that particular episode hit rock bottom in the ratings. And so he said, I can't afford to deal with that issue of uh, uh, equality for the LGBT people. And so I told them that Gene was very venturesome and he really supported the idea of LGBT equality, but he couldn't because he had to keep the show on the air. And that's why uh, we need to honor Gene Roddenberry as he created a character. I said, I'm delighted that times have changed and now uh, we, we can talk about an LGBT uh, or gay character and making, think of making Sulu gay. I'm very flattered and honored, but we need to honor Gene Roddenberry by creating a new character who has his own history and his own struggles in the 23rd century and, and, and focusing on that, but not to change the character that Gene Roddenberry created. And so I lobbied for him to stay straight and to, for them to carry, uh, create a new character, which is what I understand go, uh, is happening with uh, the new uh, TV series. So, you know, that's what I had lobbied for, and I made no impact at all. <laughs> you saw what, uh, and I thought they were gonna do something significant, but if you saw the movie, it's just a whisper. I mean, what was that that happened, you know? Oh, they're, they're, they're male roommates whispering to one another. There's a little little baby there, a little girl there. Yeah, oh, I guess one of them adopted a yeah. child uh, or something. But it's so brief and so passing that, you know, and that might be the right approach to it because in the 23rd century, that would be as normal as uh, uh, a woman waiting for him and with a baby and going off together. So that that's all right, but if he really wanted to uh, honor Gene Roddenberry, it should be with a, a, a brand new character, with his own history, not to change a character that Gene Roddenberry created. Well, I, 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 I love your input, and thank you for answering I just have one tiny little thing question. Now, I know Desilu Studios helped Star Trek get off the ground. Um, did you get to meet Lucille Ball? That was my other question. I have. That's awesome. <laughs> she's a tough-looking lady when she's a studio head. <laughs> oh, we have someone in full costume up next. Good afternoon. Um, I have about five reasons why I'm on social media, and I have to say that you and Brad are number one. You're the only reason... Can I we get a round of applause for Brad Takei? Come on. It's, half of you are, are on board with me here. Brad's somewhere here. Oh, he's hiding. Brad doesn't want to come out. Brad doesn't want to be the center of attention. Oh, there he is. Come on stage, Brad. Come here, come here. Come up here, come up here. Get over here. You hate me for this probably, but get on stage. So. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here. Hi, George will still be signing autographs after the talk this afternoon. <laughs> so that my, was a commercial break. Always about business. My 
question then for you is, obviously the Japanese, American, and Canadian internment was an issue you wanted to address, you wanted awareness. LGBTQ2S uh, pie is obviously another, another advocacy issue that you've been addressing, but was there anything else that got you started? Because now you're a social media guru. You, for a man of your generation, are a, a legend in social media. So what got that ball rolling? Well, oh, I, he just whispered to me, this is the last question. So you're the third one. I'm sorry I'm giving you long-winded answers, but the questions have been so good, that uh, questions that required a detailed answer. Forgive me. Uh, I see all these other people w in line. Uh, and I've, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> Aside from the Japanese internment and... Japanese-American. Well, Japanese-American. Japanese-Canadian. Japanese she got it right the, the Japanese She got it right the first time, and yeah. then I threw her off. Aside from that and other advocacy issues, what got the ball rolling with you and Brad and social media? Uh, well, there are all... You know, I've been involved in uh, advocacy from before Star Trek uh, because I, of our internment. Uh, when I was a teenager, I wanted to, you know, I, I read uh, civics books and history books about the, the shining ideals of our democracy, and I couldn't reconcile that with what I knew to be our childhood uh, imprisonment. And so I had many, many discussions with my father, and he said, our democracy is a people's democracy. And it can be as great as a people can be, but it's also as fallible as people are. And... It's, uh, our democracy is vitally dependent on people who cherish those ideals and actively engage in the political process. And one Sunday, he took me downtown to the Adlai Stevenson for President campaign headquarters, and he volunteered me, although he said, we volunteered. I just went with my father, and he said, here, here you are. This is how democracy works. And I became an advocate and a... a and a political activist from way back then. And the big issue that I'm uh, taking on now is gun control, because it's madness. Thank you. It's good to know that, that, that we have your support. But you have, you have no more captive an audience than a moderator who lives in Texas. He lives in Texas. Where, it's terrifying. Where you can carry a hidden gun onto a university campus. And at that, a campus where, uh, what about 40 years ago, there was this horrific tragedy of this uh, vet that went a little off kilter, went to the top of a tower, and started randomly shooting other students on campus. And that's where I live, Austin, Texas. That's where you live, Austin, Texas. I mean, that is the worst case of lack of uh, rational control over guns. And so we've got to get some rationality into uh, gun control. And particularly now in recent times when we have terrorism that uh, murders ma masses of people and, and people who do that can go out and buy... Uh, well, first of all, we have uh, what's... Uh, called the watch list where uh, there are questions People about one's background and, and so they can't they're not allowed to get on planes and yet they can go off and buy a gun an assault gun 
that, uh, a mass assault gun. I mean, th this is crazy. It's insane. And yet, they're, uh, they're so-called right to do that, to have a lunatic go out and uh, buy a gun without any kind of restraint. We've got to get rationality into that. Uh, I've been a, a, an advocate from long before Star Trek uh, as a uh, person who, uh, as a child, experienced the unconstitutional uh, deprivation of our, our uh, freedom and our property and our uh, justice uh, by both the Canadian government and the uh, United States government. So that is something that uh, I guess you asked why I got started on uh, uh, activism. I think it's my childhood imprisonment that got me started. Thank you very much, George. Now, George, I know that you, uh, you like uh, giving some closing uh, remarks. Have, have you given some thought to which one of those questions you liked the best? Well, they were all very, very interesting questions, and that's why I, I gave, uh, forgive me, a very uh, extended answer. Oh, but and the good I news is everyone to can, all of you standing in line. You can all come and see him at his table afterward. He's staying for a little bit longer, so you can get the direct right there in-person experience with George. Yes. But uh, I'm told that I have to choose one. Just one. That, uh, uh, t to me, was... Um, the most uh, interesting question. Uh, maybe it's... Hmm. Which one shall I choose? There were oh, only three. There were only three. There, we should have had more questions. So that, that, it, well, they were very good. They were very good. There was the very good one where you got to talk about the interesting roundabout way that Errol right. Flynn worked into your work. We had that one that uh, that we got to talk about your activism work, which is very important to you. Jack Sue was one. That was uh, your that, one. That was me. That was me. That was, my, that well, was mine for you me. You don't count because you're up here. So, uh, uh, so I don't know. Er Errol Flynn or activism, what, what do you think? Uh... I think the last one, the young lady who asked... Can you, can you come up here for a second? Come here. Come up to the edge of the stage. Give Congratulations her, her to you, and my apologies to the other two, uh, the two guys. Uh, you ask great questions, too, but uh, I think... Oh, the, you're She's green. <laughs> You were silhouetted, so I didn't see you as green. <laughs> this green young lady, dressed very buxomly in uh, <laughs> a yeoman's outfit, is the one that asked about activism and how I got started. So congratulations to you. Thank you for the question. So the, reason, uh, the reason I asked you up here, uh, one of my friends here to the side is going to get your name. Hold on, hold on. Your name, your address, your email address. Make sure you give them all three of those. Because CBS Home Entertainment told me, go to Canada, do George Takei's Q&A, and give away a copy of our 50th anniversary, the original series Blu-ray deluxe box set. Do you, do you own a Blu-ray player? I own everything. <laughs> So you're well, well However, your address has to be on the planet Earth. <laughs> your green planet doesn't count. We don't have postal service up there. <laughs> Let, and, you can't ship it to Orion. What's, what's your name? It's Mesh. Mesh? Thank you so much. Let's hear for Mesh. Congratulations to you. Give her your info. <laughs> I had no idea she was green. <laughs> Well, thank you all very much. It's been a wonderful visit to uh, Toronto. And again, I repeat, 
Justin Trudeau is fantastic. <laughs> now, George, I have one thing that I want to say to you. You mean so much to so many of us, so many things that you've chosen to take a stand on that you didn't have to. You didn't have to, but you felt the urge to, you felt the mission to, is the greatest honor that you could do the people who came before you, your father, people who you've worked with, who've been heroes of yours, and that's why you're a hero of all of us here. Let's hear it for George. George will be back at his table. Please come see him. He's going to be at his table for another hour. Do not miss your chance to see this wonderful man.